Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but tonight, uh, is the, we're not here for Friends with Benefits, I, some of you might be, but uh, what we're actually here for is, uh, is for Mr. David Isay. Um, he's produced documentaries, he's worked in public radio for many years, and in fact, I've learned, uh, after ditching med school in the early 90s, he was one of the first and very few people in the U.S. who was committed to producing radio documentaries. Uh, he's been honored with Peabody Awards, plural, uh, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a MacArthur Genius Grant, um, and you probably know him because of the StoryCorps Oral History Project, he may tell us more about that, um, whose mission is to, quote, provide Americans of all backgrounds and beliefs with the opportunity to record, share, and preserve the stories of our lives. Um, so as much as all of us love books, and heaven knows we do, it is the stories that they house that touch our hearts and make our pulses race. So please join me in welcoming David Isay. Hello. I hear someone whistling, so it's got to be my oldest friend in the world who's over there. Okay. Hi, Scott. <laughs> Great to be here. Um, thank you all for coming out. Um, and I'm um, really excited to be kicking off the um, book tour for the newest StoryCorps book, All There Is. Um, so let me just start by asking, who, well, who here um, listens to StoryCorps on public radio? Okay, good. And has anyone participated in StoryCorps? Okay, is anybody in this book? No, okay. All right. I always have to check. Any other, any of the old books? No, okay. Um, and who, um, did, did anybody listen to KCRW this morning? Okay. And who pledged? Uh, okay. So, um, and who has no idea what StoryCorps is? Okay. Always in the back. Hi. This is for you. Um, no, I'm glad. That's, you're, you're, you're the reason that um, I get to talk about how StoryCorps came to be. So, StoryCorps, um, started eight years ago in New York City. And um, it, it was this kind of crazy idea. We put a booth in Grand Central Terminal where you can bring anyone who you want to honor by listening to their story. It could be a friend, a grandmother, a partner. And you come to this booth and you're met by a facilitator who works for StoryCorps who brings you inside the booth. And you sit across from, say, your grandmother for 40 minutes. There's a facilitator in the corner. The space is kind of a sacred space. The lights are low. And for 40 minutes, you talk, you listen. Um, many people um, think of it as if I had 40 minutes left to live to talk 
talk to this person who means so much to me, what would I want to ask them, what would I want to say? So they're very intense conversations, always a lot of tissue gets um, burned through over the course of a conversation. At the end of the 40 minutes, um, and there's a facilitator sitting in the corner operating two CD burners, and you have this conversation for 40 minutes. And then um, at the end, there are two CDs that have been burned. One goes home with you, and the other one stays with us and goes to the Library of Congress. So someday your great, 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 great grandkids can get to know your grandmother through her voice and story. So um, it's a very simple idea that um, ended up working. Uh, I was worried when we opened this thing up. I had all kinds of nightmares. You put a booth in Grand Central Terminal, what's going to happen? Is someone going to pull out a gun and shoot the person like Jerry Springer style? I didn't know. But 40,000 interviews later with 80,000 people across the country, it's a tribute to the staff, the facilitators who've, um, who, are, um, who call themselves um, uh, bearing witness to these interviews and, and do a phenomenal job. Not one of these interviews has gone wrong. Um, so we started, we have mobile booths to travel the country. We have booths in different cities. We have facilitators who put equipment on their back and travel to quiet spaces and do these interviews. And um, you know, I think the, the power of what happens in these interviews is that, and we, we spend a lot of time uh, making sure that we reach out to people who might not have heard of us on the radio or in the newspaper. So 50% of our slots are held for partnering with community groups. So it could be a juvenile justice group or you know homeless folks. And I think in particular people who might feel like their lives don't matter, that experience where you're being asked about your life, what do you know, how do you want to be remembered, it tells you that your life matters and you won't be forgotten. Um, so um, 40,000 interviews and counting. Um, and you hear excerpts of some of these interviews on NPR on Friday morning. And we have books and we have animations now also. Has anyone seen our animations? Great, good, okay, so you guys, you should check them out there. If you go to our website, storycore.org, um, we started animating these stories about a year ago. Um, and uh, and the, the, the stories on the radio, and we see every, we think of every story as equally valuable. We think of it as a sacred experience in people's lives. But there are some that have this kind of universal quality that make them appropriate for sharing with a larger audience. Uh, and what, what I like to think happens with these stories is, um, you know, especially when you're listening on the radio. Radio is such a fantastic, you know, a, a medium. I've been doing radio for many, many years now, and it's so, so intimate. Um, and it's almost like the person who is telling that story is sitting in the passenger seat next to you if you're driving and listening to these stories. And uh, almost by definition, when you hear one of these story core stories, it's going to be someone who's very different than you. Um, so what I hope happens is that we walk in the footsteps of someone who we thought might have been different, even just for an instant when we hear these stories and recognize all those good things that um, that we all believe about our shared humanity and maybe um, we're a little more similar than um, one might think from watching 24-hour cable news and listening to the um, the primary um, races and all that sort of stuff and that if we spent more time listening to each other and less time screaming at each other we'd be a better stronger country um, so this um, book is our third book um, all there is, and it's love stories from StoryCorps, and it's about 40 stories from 40,000 interviews, uh, and these are the most remarkable love stories that um, that we found out of all the interviews we did. And I'm gonna, um, I'll play a bunch of them tonight, and um, also I'm happy to answer questions throughout if anybody has any questions. So, does anybody have any questions? <laughs> well, okay. So let's just start doing doing stories. So um, this first one, I I, I I we started this tour in Brooklyn uh, two nights ago, and I'll start with a Brooklyn story. And this is um, a couple who. Uh, came to StoryCorps about a year and a half ago. Um, her name is um, Honey, uh, and, and his name is Elliot, Honey and Elliot Riken. Honey and Elliot Riken um, 
were, are both twins. Honey has an identical twin named Bunny, and uh, Elliot has an identical twin named Danny. And, and this is a very Brooklyn story. Any, is any, are there any New Yorkers here? Okay, good, all right. So you, you'll be able to recognize the accents and everyone else. You can translate for everybody else. Um, so Honey and, Honey and Bunny, and Elliot and Danny were, were all at a hotel in the Catskills. Honey and Bunny were waitresses. Elliot and Danny were in a band and they fell in love. And Honey married Elliot and Danny married Bun uh, Honey married Elliot, Danny married Bunny. Uh, and, and Honey and Elliot came to StoryCorps. So this is Honey and Elliot Riken. Um, and their story is one of the stories in this new book. So let's see if we can find it. When we met, you and your sister couldn't tell us apart, and we couldn't tell you two apart. But by the end of the summer, there was no chance of separating us, and we had a double wedding. You and I were married the same day as Bunny and Danny were married, and it was two brides, two grooms, one set of parents for each. The gowns were identical gowns. Uh, the flowers were identical. We both went on a honeymoon to Miami Beach by different trains. Yeah, so people didn't want wouldn't. It would be so obvious that people would be staring at us. You know, yeah, the twins that married the twins. What did you think about marrying me many years ago? You bowled me over with your way of kissing and the way you hold me when we dance. You're not a fantastic dancer, but you hold me fantastically, and I feel it. It's genuine. You're just not phony. I don't think you have a phony bone in your body. And I never thought anybody lasts this many years. Well, just yesterday was our 50th anniversary. Yeah, now it's 11 years after that. Yeah. I never feel, what will he do if I die first? You know how to open tuna fish. You know how to smear it with mayonnaise. You will not fall apart. You'll feel sad when I'm gone, but you'll manage, and that makes me feel very good. Thank you for being you, Elliot. You made my life complete. And I say the same. You made my life complete, and I hope we go on for another 50 years. I'll take five good ones. Five good ones. And I'll say, thank you, God. <laughs> That's like shooting fish in a barrel, though. I mean, you put the two of them together. Um, but, I, you know, I think that, uh, that, that I, when I, I and I've, it's, it's great being at the beginning of the tour because I've only heard these clips now a couple times. And um, by, in a couple weeks, it'll be 500 times. Uh, and, you know, but w when she says you're not a phony, I mean, that could almost be the, um, that could almost be the, the theme of uh, StoryCorps. And I think part of the power of, of these stories is that um, people are being, very authentic with each with each other. That I, I during uh, Christmas I don't watch a lot of TV. I have a couple of small kids at home. But uh, during um, Christmas vacation, I was at the gym and I saw cable, and it's just this kind of endless um, pawn shop um, uh, reality shows. And um, and you know what? The, nobody in StoryCorps is looking to get rich. Nobody's looking to get famous. This is just a simple act of generosity of looking a loved one in the eye and saying, "Who are you?" Um, and and this is what comes out of that. Uh, I'm going to play another story. I played it um, this morning on uh, on KCRW, and I'm going to play it again because it's such a beautiful um, piece. And this to me is this is um, a very meat and potatoes kind of StoryCorps story, and speaks to the kind of um, the the 
one of the core ideas of StoryCorps, the power and the poetry and the grace in the words of everyday people when we take the time to listen. Um, and this is an excerpt of a StoryCorps story. It's Paul Wilson and Marty Smith. Paul Wilson is um, 93 years old. He was. Uh, this was two years ago, so he's 95 now. And he came to StoryCorps with his daughter, Marty, um, to talk about meeting her mother in the 1940s. And um, Paul, at the time, was working at the top floor of an office building in Wichita, Kansas, and that's where this story was recorded. So listen for the poetry of the language in this piece. We heard the One day I was waiting in the lobby for the elevator. The door slid aside, and there she stood. The prettiest girl I had ever seen. She was the operator. There were three or four other people on the elevator, and I was the last one on floor number 10. And she opened the door, and I said, thank you. And she said, you're welcome. That was the total conversation, that first contact. Of course, in the next few days, I saw her. But I was so backward and bashful that I didn't say anything to her except 10. She said, yes, I know. <laughs> Thank goodness she broke the ice. She said, do you know where you can get some good chop suey? How about that for an opening? <laughs> I said, sure. The cafe across the street is a Chinese cafe. They serve chop suey. I sensed that she set that up. <laughs> I realized later she did. When I said I eat there every day, she said, oh. <laughs> I realized I had an opening. And we had chop suey, and we got acquainted. We got married right there in my mother's living room, and uh, we had a 63-year honeymoon. And as you often say to me, when we part company, you say, life is good. And I have to think, yeah, life is good, even though I, I've lost my sweetheart. Who was it that said the best thing a man can do for his children is to love their mother? I did my best. <laughs> you did. We were real lovers, and uh, every day is a memorial for her. One of the um, things is, you know, you put together a, a book like this, and then it kind of goes through the mill at the publishing house for a year, and then I read it again last week for the first time. And I think what there are a couple of things that stand out for me about the stories in this book. One is, uh, just like the meeting in the elevator, the sense of serendipity that, um, that, um, that we see in so many of these love stories. And, and also reading the book, it seems it's um, less to me when you read it as a whole a book about love and love stories as it is a book about hope. Um, because in so many of these stories, and we have the whole last section of the book, uh, and I'll play you some, at least one story from there, is about people who never thought that they'd fall in love. And uh, at whatever age it is, at some point, that person sneaks up behind them and taps them on the shoulder, and it happens. Um, um, any questions before I go into the, yeah? I was curious how you said it's a 40-minute interview. Yes. So the so it's a it's a it's a 40-minute interview, and um, when during the interview the facilitators are um, in the room and they're doing a lot of in, in the in the booth and they're doing a lot of things or helping you 
be comfortable. Um, they're there to ask questions if you want them to or not if you don't. They're also keeping logs of what happens during the interview and they make a, a notation about whether a story might be appropriate for broadcast or a book. Um, and the facilitators as part of their tour of duty, when StoryCorps started, um, we, I had it as a one-year tour of duty for these facilitators who essentially travel the country gathering the wisdom of humanity because that's what happens in these interviews. But it was too expensive to retrain people. So now people can go for three years, but after three years, they're toast because it's very, very difficult um, work. But the facilitators will mark if something's appropriate for radio or a book. And they also will edit. They learn how to edit stories. So they'll edit the kind of long clips and send them to the production team in New York. And they vet them down. And then every year, week, we pick a new one for broadcast. So we have a great, uh, brilliant um, production team who, you know, and I, I think, um, in, um, I think of these ki as kind of poems, you know, and what we're doing is taking these interviews and distilling it down to the essence. And, and of course, the participants, when you participate in StoryCorps, you sign, at the end of the, we see it as human service. So at the end of the StoryCorps interview, you sign a release or you don't sign a release. Um, if you sign a release, the, the interview comes to us and goes to the Library of Congress. If you don't sign the release, they, um, you walk away with both copies of the interview and there's no record that you've ever come to StoryCorps. And that's fine with us. Hopefully you've had a great experience. And when StoryCorps started, I thought we'd see a compliance rate in the 60-70% range because it's so intimate what happens in the booth. And 40,000 interviews later, it's above 99.5%, which speaks to the fact that people want to really leave this record. Um, and when you sign a release, we have the right to do anything we want to do with the stories, but we do see it. We take that bond very seriously with participants. So um, we always check with them and make sure that they're comfortable with the stories being broadcast. We play it for them. So they become partners in, in the process. And if you watch the animations online, um, you'll see that um, the, um, the animations themselves, uh, and I've, I'm a radio person, I don't, I'm not a TV person at all, there'll never be cameras in the booth, but um, these animations are done by these brilliant animators, one of whom was actually a facilitator for StoryCorps, but they go and they actually draw the truth of what happened. You know, the people are the actual people, the rooms are in are the actual rooms, so if that last story in the elevator would be the, you would see the elevator in Wichita in that building, so. Um, so that's, does that answer your question? Yeah. Anything else before I go to really sad stories? <laughs> the tissue. I always um, thought that um, Kleenex should be a sponsor of StoryCorps, and I could, I could never get to them. We get emails about that all the time, too, but if anybody knows people at Kimberly Clark, you should write into them, yeah. Do, do the facilitators have themes in mind or props in mind? No. You know, what, what we do is, um, we, we don't ever tell people what to ask or what to talk about in the booth. Most people, almost everybody, you know, I was at a, I did a reading last night um, and um, someone said, raised their hand and said, you know, last time StoryCorps was here, we called five minutes after the reservations arrived and we were like 900 on the waiting list to get in. So when you get in, people take it pretty, pretty seriously. They prepare before, the, most people like prepare the questions. The only thing the facilitators tell to people before they go in is, um, whatever you really want to ask, like ask it at the very beginning because the 40 minutes go by really quickly. So we don't, we don't direct. We do have special projects where we'll work with a specific group of people. So, and I'm gonna play, um, I'll play a couple stories from, um, from uh, one of those. Uh, we have an African-American project called GRIO, the GRIO Initiative, which is now the largest collection of African-American voices ever gathered. Um, a Latino initiative. We just launched one for families in hospice and palliative care. And our first initiative ever was with 9-11 families. So everybody who lost a loved one on September 11th comes to StoryCorps um, and leaves a record of that person's life. 
<coughs> and um, um, and I'm going to play. I'm going to play there. And there were obviously a lot of love stories among those. Um, and I'll play one from um, a woman named Beverly Eckert, who uh, lost her husband Sean Rooney uh, in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Um, and she recorded this on the fifth anniversary of of 9/11. Sean had warm brown eyes and dark curly hair, and uh, he was a good hugger. I mean, that when we were only 16 at a high school dance. And when he died, we were 50. It was about 9.30 a.m. when he called. They told me he was on the 105th floor, and he'd been trying to find a way out. And he told me that he, you know, he hadn't had any success, and now the stairwell was full of smoke. I asked if it hurt for him to breathe, and he paused for a moment and then said, no, <laughs> he loved me enough to lie. We stopped talking about escape routes, and then we just began talking about all the happiness we shared during our lives together. I told him that I wanted to be there with him, die with him. But he said, no, no, he wanted me to live a full life. As the smoke got thicker, he just kept whispering, I love you, over and over. I just wanted to crawl through the phone lines to him and hold him one last time. Then I heard a sharp crack, followed by the sound of, a, of an avalanche. It was the building beginning to collapse. I called his name into the phone over and over. Then I just sat there pressing the phone to my heart. I think about that last half hour with Sean all the time. I remember how I, I didn't want that day to end, terrible as it was. I, I didn't want to go to sleep because as long as I was awake, it was still a day that I'd shared with Sean. You know, and he kissed me goodbye before leaving for work. I could still say that was just a little while ago. It was only this morning. And uh, looking back, and all that has happened since he died and the causes I fought for and the, the things I've done. I, I just think of myself as living life for both of us now. And I like to think that Sean would be proud of me. So Beverly Eckert recorded that tribute to her husband, um, Sean, uh, five years after 9-11, and it actually became a tribute to her as well because Beverly Eckert died in um, the plane crash of Continental Flight 3407 uh, when it was flying to Buffalo. She was going to go back and be with Sean's family for his birthday and uh, died in that, in that plane crash. Um, I'm going to read another 9-11 story. From, uh, from the book, and I hope I, I do it justice. Let me see if I can find it. I hope I brought it. I think I'll just read it from the book. Here we have um, this is a woman named Grand Kestenbaum who lost her husband, um, How Howard Kestenbaum, on 9-11. Uh, on and uh, this is, you know, again, the, the, um, the beauty of the, the language in this um, is phenomenal. Um, so she writes, uh, 
Howard and I met on Friday the 13th, 1969. He fell on me at a party and I thought he was the goofiest guy I'd ever met in my life. He was a student at Columbia working on his PhD in astrophysics, but I didn't believe him. He said he was 25. He didn't look 25. He had a shirt that was so rumpled and he had these old stovepipe jeans on and a pair of shoes, one of which had many, 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 many rubber bands wrapped around it because his soul was coming apart. <laughs> When I, was, when I was going to leave the party, he said, I'll walk you home. And I thought, what did I do to deserve this? I don't want you to walk me home. <laughs> and so he walked me and my friend home. I lived at that time in a girl's residence on West 11th Street in the village. And my friend and I stayed up and talked about what a goofball he was. So some weeks later, he called me and he said, hello, this is Howie. And I said, Howie who? And he said, fine, thank you, Howie you. <laughs> um, and then it talks about him, um, he would um, go try and figure out which apartment she was in and he, it was, it's a, he, he, when she would walk out with a date, he would be sitting on her stoop and wave at the, date, at the date, which sounds kind of creepy, but the way she says it, it's not at all. Um, and then uh, she, he says, uh, uh, I still wouldn't date him. At one point he got some helium balloons and he floated them up. I was on the second or third floor and they said, Grand, please come out. The girls thought that was wonderful, but I was embarrassed to death. I thought, this guy is nuts. F finally, the lady in charge of the residence said, you've got to get this guy out of here. She said, give him a date for God's sake, get it over with. So I went out and I said, I'll date you someday. He said, no, you'll forget me. You've got to date me now. So he said, dinner. I said, oh no, I'm not dating you for dinner. I said, how about lunch? He came on a Saturday for lunch and we went to Washington Square and he had a package of crystal mint lifesavers and some seltzer. And he split the lifesavers in half and he drank half the seltzer and then he handed me the can. But the next year in June of 1970 we were married and then for 31 years we were together. And then at the end of the interview she writes, um, he died on, in Tower 2 of the World Trade Center. Um, People talk about closure. There's no closure when you lose a loved one. I don't care how you lost them, your heart is always open. Edna St. Vincent Millay wrote something that affected me. It says, where you used to be, there's a hole in the world, which I find myself constantly walking around in the daytime and falling into at night. I miss you like hell. I miss him like hell. Um. I think I'll spare you another sad one. <laughs> Let's move on to um, the, the found at last um, section of, uh, of, of, story, of this book, All There Is. Um, this is a story about a man named um, David Wilson, which is one of, uh, which is a, uh, it's a, David Wilson um, tells a story about being, uh, he, he's, he um, was married for a few years and realized he was gay. And um, he, um, had a partner named Ron. They lived in Boston. And um, Ron, he, uh, 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 David's African-American, Ron was white. They lived in a white neighborhood. And one day um, when David pulled into the driveway, Ron, who had been raking leaves, had just keeled over of a, of a heart attack. And he was dying on the front lawn. And David went over to, to take care of him. And the police came and the ambulance came. And they tried to arrest David because they thought he was um, uh, assaulting him or trying to rob the house. And of course, when they went to the hospital, um, he wasn't allowed to be with um, Ron when he died. Uh, and then um, and then David um, 
uh, sometime later was in a bereavement group and he met uh, a, a man named uh, Rob and they've been together since then and he, um, he they were both uh, the lead plaintiffs in the loss in the lawsuit that uh, legalized gay marriage in the state of Massachusetts and this is um, just a short excerpt of, of the of the interview when he talks about um, telling his um, dad about being the plaintiff in the lawsuit Part of the decision to be part of the case was to talk with my family. My dad wasn't sure. All of a sudden, his only son is going to become this prominent, out, gay, black man. So I talked with dad about some of the issues. A couple of hours later, dad said, you're doing the right thing. May 17th, 2004 was the first weddings. Dad said, well, you're going to City Hall and you're going to be part of all of this excitement. What about me? I said, Dad, I'm sending a limo to pick you up. My dad had never been in a limo. He got a new suit, came down, and the limo took him down. And he was in the front row, and when we walked down the aisle, both his arms were in the air. He was 89 at that point. And he didn't see it just for gay people. He saw it for, you know, all people that had been discriminated against. And his whole life he had been discriminated against. So I think for Dad, it was just a victory that he could be a part of. He could not have been more proud. It was a great day. I love that image of the dad um, with his arms up as they're walking down the aisle. Uh, I'll play, I'm going to play the story we actually broadcast today, which um, when I was, uh, it was maybe a year and a half ago that I was sitting uh, in the lobby of a hotel somewhere reading these transcripts. And the way that the, these books get put together is that um, the stories that were marked appropriate for print, we, we transcribe about a thousand of them. And then we have a team who reads through them and starts to call them down. And I remember reading this, the full transcript of this story, and just thinking that um, not believing kind of where it was going uh, from page to page. And I should say that everything that you hear on StoryCorps is, um, is true. Um, these, are, these stories are fact-checked within an inch of their life. Everything you read in this book is true as well. Um, so this is, um, I'm going to play a brief excerpt of this story. Um, it's a man named um, Peter Hayden. Uh, who fell in love with a woman named Jackie. They were, he was 16 and she was 15. And they both lived uh, on a naval base in central Maryland. And he saw her in a skating rink and fell in love with her. And um, over the next 40 years, she ended up uh, a, a year later, her, um, her uh, or, or a few months later, her family was transferred to Japan. And, um, and Thomas soon joined the Marines to go to Japan and told them I want to go to Japan and they said, you know, we're going to tell you where to go. And it, it, this story takes place over um, over three continents and through the Vietnam War. And basically it's, um, it's uh, Thomas Hayden who knew he was desperately in love with Jackie pursuing her. She got married. She was in a bad marriage. She stayed in the marriage. And this is, um, this is uh, the, when they finally, after these twists and turns that are really unbelievable, um, that we finally, um, the two of them finally get together 40 years after they met in the, um, in the roller skating rink. I had tried to call him off and on over the years, and I'd always call the operator and say, do you have a T.P. Hayden? And she'd say no. And then in 98, I had made up my mind, I am just out of here. I'm so miserable. I'm so unhappy. So I said, well, nobody ever loved me but Peter. 
I'm going to go see if I can find him one more time. And the operator said, I've got a T.P. Hayden in White Plains. And I said, oh my God, that's him. I said, I have been trying to find this person for 30 years. It's the love of my life. <laughs> she said, do you want me to dial a number for you? I said, yeah, you can dial a number. She said, can I stay on the line? I said, I don't care what you do. And the phone rang. And she said, do you know who this is? I said, yeah, I know exactly who this is. She said, I bet you're mad at me. I said, no, matter of fact, I'm still in love with you. <laughs> it's just sad the time we lost. But I got her back, so I won, you know? <laughs> and she's just as beautiful as she was when she's, uh, she was 15. I'm gonna, um, and do, I, do you have any questions before I play the last couple of stories and then we'll be done? Yes. Oh! We have, um, we have a, uh, someone who was actually in a previous um, StoryCorps book. Connie Alvarez is here. Can you come up? Would you talk for a sec? Um, Connie is one, she's in a cartoon, so now everybody has to go and watch animated Connie. <laughs> Connie and her mom, um, Blanca, came to StoryCorps many years ago, and Connie works at KCRW. And, um, and uh, they told the story of her mom coming here from Mexico. Uh, how many years ago was it now? Uh, at least 42, 43. 42 or 43 years ago, and it's this amazing, beautiful story and of, um, of uh, her mom coming over and then raising these kids and putting herself through college and inspiring the kids to go to college. And I, you know, one of the things, we've gotten to know each other from um, over the years, over many years now, and the, the story of how it happened was that um, Connie, there was uh, the, our booth, it was the first time we were ever, we had just launched our, our first um, national tour and our booth was on the promenade and there was a, someone didn't show up for their interview and Connie was, I was near the booth or working at the booth and grabbed her mom and, um, and brought her into the booth and had this conversation that they never had before which is now animated or <laughs> whatever, whatever that means. Do you want, is there anything you want to well, say about that? I just want to say it's true. They asked me for pictures of my, when I grew up, like could I find old pictures? What was it like in that that time when you know when we were growing up and what we talked about in the story? Um, what about the building from the outside? So they really do fact check everything, you know, to to make the animation just right and accurate. And and then they'd call me back and go, "Did this happen? When did this happen? Can you tell me again what date?" You know, so it it really they really put a lot of attention to the the detail of the story. And it, it's just I can't stress enough if the if you ever go to New York, or if the mobile booth ever comes here, you gotta do. You gotta talk to someone because it's the best experience you could ever have, and it's so. It's really it fills your heart, and then you go, why don't I do this on a regular basis? You know, so that's. I just want to endorse it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Do you sure. have another baby? Yeah. What I do know. you do? I'm doing four weeks. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> last time, last time I saw Connie, she was having a baby. Yeah. You are a brave woman. <laughs> um, so I'm going to play. Uh, I'm going to play the the, mo the classic um, story core love stories, and then we'll um, we'll conclude here. Um, these are we're going to go back to Brooklyn to end uh, this um, this uh, uh, reading, and uh, these are really thick Brooklyn accents, but it's it's worth it to stick through this. Um, this is a couple who came to StoryCorps in the first, and sometimes I don't play this story, and uh, the people who have 
who know StoryCorps come up and complain afterwards. So I kind of, it's, I don't know, it's weird. It's like the hit song or something <laughs> of StoryCorps. Um, so this is a couple who came to StoryCorps in the first week after StoryCorps opened. Um, his name was Danny Parasa, and his wife's name is Annie Parasa, and they came to StoryCorps. He was an OTB clerk, and OTB, until recently, New York was off-track betting, so he was a horse betting clerk. And uh, Annie was a nurse, and they came to StoryCorps to tell the story of their first date that had happened 25 years before. And I actually wasn't planning to play this tonight, so I have to find it. Let me see. Okay. Okay, so this is Danny and Annie Parasa. This is the first week of StoryCorps um, telling the story of their first date. She started to talk, and I said, listen, I'm going to deliver a speech. I said, at the end, you're going to want to go home. I said, you represent a 34-letter word. I said, that word is love. I said, if we're going anywhere, we're going down the aisle because I'm too tired, too sick, and too sore to do any other damn thing. And she turned around, and she said, well, of course I'll marry you. And the next morning, I called her as early as I possibly could. And he always gets up early. <laughs> to, make, to make sure she hadn't changed her mind, and she hadn't. And uh, every year on, on April 22nd, around 3 o'clock, I call her and ask her if it was today, would she do it again? And so far, the answer's been the same. Yeah, 25 times, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see, the thing of it is, I always feel guilty when I say I love you to you, and I say it so often. I say it to remind you that as dumpy as I am, it's coming for me. It's, it's like hearing a beautiful song from a busted old radio. And it's nice of you to keep the radio around the house. If I don't have a note on the kitchen table, I think there's something wrong. You write a love letter to me well, every the only morning. thing that could possibly be wrong is I couldn't find a silly pen. To my princess, the weather out today is extremely rainy. I'll call you at 11.20 in the morning. It's a romantic weather And report. I love you, I love you, I love you. When a guy is happily married, no matter what happens at work, no matter what happens in the rest of the day, there's a shelter when you get home. There's a knowledge, knowing that you can hug somebody without them throwing you downstairs and saying, get your hands off me. And it, it, being married is like having a color television set. You never want to go back to black and white. So Danny and Annie um, fell in love with uh, StoryCorps, and we fell in love with Danny and Annie. Over the, um, after we opened up, they came back to StoryCorps over and over and over again. Danny brought every character he'd ever come across in his life, <laughs> undercover narcotics agents and Major League Baseball umpires. And Danny and Annie came back together to read love letters to each other. And it eventually got to the point where Danny would, uh, would call and say, you know, I, I have a cataract operation on Friday. Do you need me to come in on Monday to document it? And we'd say, sure, any opportunity to get the guy in the booth. And he was, and this, this, Danny and Annie, um, Danny was, to me, the world's great romantic, and he, um, uh, he wouldn't strike you as such walking down the street. He was, um, he, he basically looked like a, a, a troll, because I saw, there's an animation of him, um, a beautiful troll. He was five feet tall, and he was bald. He had one snaggle tooth, and he had crossed eyes. Um, but he had more romance in his little pinky than all of the um, famous uh, leading men of this fair city of yours. Um, he, um, Danny was um, diagnosed about two years after that with uh, pancreatic cancer, and he got sick uh, very, very quickly. We, um, we uh, about a, a week after his um, diagnosis, we dedicated our Grand Central booth to him and Annie and renamed it the Danny and Annie Parasa StoryCorps booth. And a week after that, he asked us, to, he was very sick, he couldn't leave his house anymore, and he asked us to come to his house to record a final interview with um, Annie. They, live in, they lived in Bay Ridge, and, uh, and we did. So this is 
um, an interview between Danny and Annie um, that um, happened um, about three years after the interview that, that you just heard. The illness is not hard on me. It's just, you know, the finality of it. And him, he goes along like a trooper. Listen, even downhill, a car doesn't roll unless it's pushed. And you're giving me a great push. The deal of it is, we try to give each other hope, and not hope that I'll live, hope that she'll do well after I pass, hope that people will support her, hope that if she meets somebody and likes him, she marries him. You know, he has everything planned, you know. I'm working on it. She said it was her call. She wants to walk out behind the casket alone. I guess that's the way to do it, because when we were married, you know how your brother takes you down, your father takes you down? She said, well, I don't know which of my brothers to walk in with. I don't want to offend anybody. I said, I got a solution. I said, you walk in with me, you walk out with me. And the other day, I said, who's going to walk down the aisle with you behind the casket? You know, to support her. And she said, nobody. I walked in with you alone. I walked out with you alone. Mm-hmm. There's a thing in life where you have to come to terms with dying. Well, I haven't come to terms with dying yet. I want to come to terms with being sure that you understand that my love for you up to this point was as much as it could be and will be as much as it could be for eternity. I always said the only thing I have to give you is a poor gift and it's myself. And I always gave it. And if there's a way to come back and give it, I'll do that too. Do you have the Valentine's Day letter there? Yeah. My dearest wife, this is a very special day. It is a day on which we share our love, which still grows after all these years. Now that love is being used by us to sustain us through these hard times. All my love, all my days, and more. Happy Valentine's Day. I could write on and on about her. She lights up the room in the morning when she tells me to put both hands on her shoulders so she can support me. She lights up my life when she says to me at night, wouldn't you like a little ice cream? Or would you please drink more water? I mean, those aren't very romantic things to say, but they stir my heart. In my mind, in my heart, there has never been, there is not now, and never will be another Annie. So we recorded that story on a Thursday, and it aired on NPR the following Friday. And Danny died about two hours after the broadcast. Um, Annie received about um, 3,000 um, condolence letters from NPR listeners, and she um, she buried a copy with Danny. And this is a case where you know Annie has talked about how you know Danny was a guy that that um, was laughed at. Through, she would say they would be waiting in line in a Chinese restaurant and people would look at him and roll their eyes and make fun of him. And for Danny, I mean, I think participating in StoryCorps and having people so moved by his 
spirit and his words meant a lot to him, um, a great deal to him. So she buried a copy of the letters with him and now um, to this day continues to read uh, one letter from public radio listeners each day instead of the letter that she would have gotten from from Danny. Um, so um, so those are love stories from StoryCorps. The, um, I hope um, you'll you'll I hope you'll buy the book. Um, every bit of money from the book uh, that uh, goes to the author goes into StoryCorps, so we can continue delivering more service um, to more people across the country. We're working hard to try to grow StoryCorps into a national institution. I think we're just at the very beginning. Um, I hope someday that this project's going to be kind of woven into the fabric of this country and touch the lives of every American family and move the needle a little bit in this country on getting people to listen to each other recognize that I think at its core what StoryCorps says is that every life matters. Every life matters equally. Um, and uh, help to create a better and, um, and stronger country. Um, so um, buy a book, spread, and, but more importantly, if you like what you heard today, spread the word about what we're doing. Come to our website, follow us, um, tell other people about, about this, and participate in StoryCorps. And we have a question, so I'll do one more question. <laughs> Well, this is like, this is very important to foreign news. Yeah. Well, okay, I had male partners and I also had female partners. I know, I just want to know. So I probably had um, about 12 girlfriends or boyfriends before. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you were able to do that. One of the um, the one of the problems we have is that even with the story kits, we have a very long um, waiting list to get the kits. So we're working on it, and we're trying. You know, I used to be uh, I used to make documentaries, and now I'm working 24 hours a day trying to raise money for StoryCorps. And someday we'll get there, and someday it'll be easier to get an appointment. And until then, if you can't get an appointment with StoryCorps, there's instructions on our website about how to have these conversations. Conversations, do these recordings yourself. You can rent. You can go get together with five neighbors and put in ten bucks a piece and get an incredible fifty-dollar digital recorder. Will if it's you know if you if you hold it in the right place, you'll have a beautiful recording. And you can we can't accept it at StoryCorps because the Library of Congress has very strict rules about what can go in. But you can make digital copies of it and it can last for a good long time. Maybe not you know hundreds of years, but it can last for a good long time. Did you have a question? Yes. Social work backgrounds, and then two, you mentioned they get burned out. Yeah. Really? Can you talk about that? Sure. So the facilitators, um, we get a lot of um, applications for facilitators, and they're hired because they, they come from all different backgrounds. It's a real, extremely diverse group in, in every way. Um, and they're hired because they're great listeners. And I think that, um, you know, there, you hear there's a lot of, you know, whether it's 9-11 stories or hospice stories, I mean, it's a very, very intense work. Um, and I think that after a while, it just gets hard to, to keep doing it. Um, but they're, um, they're really fantastically talented people. And, you know, as I said, that this book is, is uh, book, I, I think about um, hope, and, and in many ways with the facilitators come back and tell us after they've, and we've had, uh, I think, all close to 200 facilitators now, um, uh, to a person when they come back off the road, um, the message that when you ask what they learned, uh, the primary um, message is that people are basically good. Um, and, uh, and the second thing that they always say is that if you think that you can judge someone's internal life by their external appearance, you're always going to be wrong. So don't try and do that. Um, so, and I think what 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 um, what what I learn and what I hope, uh, what I think most people take from this book is also, you know, never to give up hope, and also that. Um, 
that really love is everything and it's worth every sacrifice um, because when we've all turned to dust and melted away, all that endures is love. So um, thank you so much. Thank you for coming tonight. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.